I think I have the credentials now to officially be a royal watcher, quote oh, unquote. Please. Oh, well, come on. I've please. triggered off so much response. Really, Daily Mail, eat your heart out. Malakud was such a beautiful town, but it's just awful to see some of this beautiful landscape completely ruined. What's with women in sport at the moment? If you're a man who's difficult to work with, it's okay. The Nerily Meadows story disturbs me. Mm. Not so much of about the women, but about the attitudes of the men around her. This is a tough time. And unless we all do something, unless landlords as well come on board, we are going to have shopping strips in Melbourne that are ghost towns. Remember that time you made that risotto and remember you admitted that you'd undercooked it and it stayed cooked in our stomachs overnight? (laughs) I don't remember that. And I remember going home and ringing you the next day and saying, I could feel the risotto still fermenting. (laughs) Risotto does not ferment. Anyway, well, what did it do? Maybe it was the weevils. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome, everybody, to episode 115 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. I'm here on a wet, wintry February morning with my friend Corrie Perkin. Hello, Caro. Melbourne's most glamorous and smart bookseller. Oh, How are you going, gosh. Corrie? Oh, well, you know, I'm puffed up now. It has been a while. You had your little road trip up north, which we'll hear a bit more about later. But um, uh, I am well and I am loving this rain. The curly weather is a bit scary at times. Well, because it makes your hair go curly. It does make mine. It makes my hair go curly. But uh, last night we had book club in the shop when the uh, brunt of the storm hit. There were ladies and there were all ladies last night all arriving. And we so we closed, locked the doors of the shop and the hailstones came in underneath the glass panels. So that was fun. Oh, and the roof leaked in the bathroom of the shop. But anyway, apart from that, I hope everybody's dry and um, safe. And, Caro, can I just, in terms of housekeeping, send a cheerio to my granddaughter, Harriet, who turns three today? Oh, happy birthday, Hattie. Happy birthday, Hattie. Can I make an apology? Please do. It's a two-week-old one. I'm st- you know how I have people I mix up all the time? And thanks to all the people who mean? told me that when I talked about Kristen Stewart not being all that convincing in Little Women and brilliant in the other film I'd just seen her in, in fact, um, which was um, just another film completely. It yes, was actually the, the, Emma, Emma Watson. Oh, yeah. How could you how could you mix that up? See, I haven't seen Little Women. I would have been right on you with that one. I'm I know. Sure. I know. I'm so alert. I know. So I'm just an idiot. And um, we're going to talk about films later because I've finally seen the Oscar winner, which intrigued me, thrilled me, left me asking as many questions as it answered. So I want to talk about that. We've got a bit of an Oscar you, rundown to do. We do have an Oscar rundown. Do you have any apologies, Corey? Uh, I don't have any apologies. I would just like to um, plug a couple of things, though, Cara. Firstly. The Don't Shoot the Messenger footy tipping competition starts again next month. So I'm saying to all of our potties, if you join only one footy tipping competition this year, come and join ours. We have a lot of fun, Carol and I, and there are oh, prizes for yep. winners. Book, yep. Book prizes. And the other How thing How did I- we go last year? I mean I made a late run but not that well. And did you do better than me? Um I no, I think you I think Carol I won the first year and you won last year. You beat me by a good handful, I think. It wasn't very close between you and I. I had a bad year. 
Uh, but I'm j- jumping out of the blocks um, this year. I promise I will be on fire. And the other thing I wanted to just plug quickly, Caro, at the shop on March the 26th at 6.30pm, this will be in our show notes and you can also go on to mybookshop.com.au. The Bushfire Recovery Appeal Night with, look at this lineup, Magda Sabansky, Barry Cassidy, our old friend from ABC, Margaret Simons, the award-winning journalist and writer, and Will Connolly, better known as Egg Boy, but we're going to move on from that title. And all four of them... Yes, he does still divide a few people. (laughs) There'll be raised eyebrows, I think, that you've got him in the shop. Well, interestingly, Magda is uh, mentoring Will at the moment about, you know, how to use use your brand and um, use it for the good, public good. Anyway, we're going to have a chat, a panel chat about uh, all things to do with bushfire and um, climate change, that sort of thing. And... All proceeds are going to Magda and Will's most excellent appeal for building services for mental health in bushfire-affected areas. If you want to know more, mybookshop.com.au has the deets. And the Kristen Stewart movie, movie I talked about, of course, was Seaberg, which was an intriguing little yes, film, if, even though it didn't... about Jean or Jean, as I always called her. I always thought she was had a French connection. I knew she lived in Paris, but I've... Well, she was born in Ohio, so I think it was. I think it was Jean. Um, a couple of bit of feedback, Corrie. Um, Anita Morris points out rightly that her club, North Melbourne, were very good in pre-season promotion of their AFLW team in terms of emails, social media, etc. And as I said a few weeks ago, the clubs are actually leading the charge there, much more than the AFL, who've made a couple of missteps where the AFLW was concerned. And she's also very proud her club was a leader in ditching pokies, which, of course, the AFL have quietly reintroduced a five-year gaming deal, which... um, even some people at the AFL weren't quite aware of. But there mm. you go. Corrie, can I bring up Diane Iverson, who disagrees with you on the Megxit issue? <laughs> Honestly, um, this has been the, this Corrie, the last two weeks. Diane simply cannot believe that Megan did not know what being a royal would mean for her life. She made a choice with a capital C-H-O-I-C-E to marry Harry. She goes on to talk about all of that, but she loves the show. And look, some people agree with us, some people agree with you, some with me. You know what? I think I have the credentials now to officially be a royal watcher, quote unquote. Oh, well, come on. I've just, I I have triggered off so much response. Really, Daily Mail, eat your heart out. Is there anyone else you want to mention? Any other feedback? Um, hello to our friend um, Natalie, Natmart Oscar on Instagram, who um, regularly gives us some good feedback. Not always positive, but that's okay. We don't mind. And she, she said, I'm she surprised. Our <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's our friend, our friend if they listen to the podcast, Caro. I was surprised, Corey, to hear you say Adam Bant was a great choice considering he's a Marxist with extremely hard left views bordering on a communist. Mm, not sure that that is entirely correct, that he's come out in his lifetime and said he's a Marxist. But anyway, I'll just leave that there. And she felt that we didn't have a balanced conversation on the bushfires and climate change. And she said, I love your podcast, but quite honestly, I nearly turned it off. But we're so glad that you haven't so far. So, jo- you know, join in the debate, everybody. We love all that. We don't sort of play the politically correct game all the time, do we, Caro? We just say what we think. We do, Two Corrie, girlfriends having a chat. Which leads us to our February challenges. How are you going? Um, my screen time is down. Uh, can we start with you? Because as, um, as, as we do this, I'm going to look at my screen <laughs> to see what my screen time is. But it is, it is down. So my, my challenge was to um, look less at my telephone. And you go. I'm shedding. I'm continuing to shed. I 
When um, I was sitting at a cafe with my mum, Julia, who was well known to this podcast on our road trip the other day, and she looked at my jeans and said, is that whole a deliberate, like, is that designer <laughs> or is that? I One thought, never knows. I thought, and I just sort of saw a vision of myself in a shop window and thought, no, those jeans were never that flattering. They've gone out. An old pair of shoes was shed along the way. A couple of much-loved, beautiful pictures that I've just got nowhere to hang and have been sitting on the floor for far too long, have gone down to the auction house, as have a beautiful old set of chairs. If I'm not using them... No, but you've replaced I'm, the chairs, so you're not really shedding. No, but in the old days, I would have kept both sets and stored the other ones somewhere for, you know, a future date. Now, I've thrown out heaps of stuff and I'm continuing to do so. Oh, well, that's good. Every day, less goes into the house than comes out. Mm, take that, Maria Kondo. There you um, go. What about, my, now, what about your screen, screen time? My screen time is down 27% from last week, which was about 29%, I think, from the previous week, which was the week you were away, so we didn't do a potty. So I'm gradually getting it down. And I've also put the little timer on with Instagram. You can put an alarm on. I don't know whether all oh, podsters know this. It's very relaxing. Oh, Jane doesn't know this. I love knowing something that Miss Jane doesn't know to do with electronics <laughs> and the digital space. <laughs> well, it's with respect. Jane. It's not often. Jane, not often. so let me tell you about this. Okay, I need this because it's just too easy to scroll I can't remember. Away. I can't. I, I think you go into your settings. I think you go via settings. Maybe you go through Instagram. I'm not sure. But you can put a little alarm on. Like, you know, when it gets to you've done it for the day. So it's a 24-hour period. Um, So don't think if you're getting up at 2 a.m. at night it doesn't count because it does. But you can put a thing on. So I've put like 20 minutes or something and and then the alarm just goes off going, you have reached your peak time. You can still go. It doesn't sort of cut out. But it is really interesting. You look at that and you get a fright and you go, right, off you go. Thank Turn you. it off. Thank you, Corrie. Try it. <laughs> Some of there us don't go. actually need to do that, Corrie, because we <laughs> because we because we're um, in still back in the twentieth century. Well, I mean, we just you know don't need to. So, Caro, um, tell me about your road trip. I'm dying to hear all about it. Look, we had a ball. We had an absolute ball. Um, it was. Some parts of it were really confronting. Most of it was really good fun. As you know, it's my favourite road trip in Australia, the south coast of New South Wales. I'll have to branch out, and we've talked about doing that maybe later in the year. The first day we knocked off, my brother very kindly lent me his car because that was heading up back to Sydney. And we should say Will lives in Sydney. Yes, so I was able to then fly back. We thought we were going to be deluged by rain. We really only were for one day. We spent the first day driving to Mallacoota, and Mallacoota is such a beautiful town. A lot of places were closed, which was a bit upsetting. The news agent had, in fact, closed down before the bushfires. Two petrol stations. One of the petrol stations is leaving town. It's very challenging for beautiful towns like this that have this, well, Mallacoota stampede was, in fact, a film made in the early 80s that our friend Deb Conway actually starred in. But they have that stampede of caravanners and campers who obviously didn't come this year. But for the rest of the year, I I guess businesses struggle. It's a beautiful fishing town. It's a beautiful village. Lucy's uh, Noodles, this famous established place that has been there for nearly two decades. And Lucy herself, an Asian who moved to Malakuta many years ago, continued to serve people during the crisis. Gorgeous little coffee shop run by a man in a caravan was still open, but a lot of places were shut. Driving along the beautiful beaches like Secret Beach, one of those places that is called something that it's not. I mean, if there's a sign saying secret beach, it's not secret. Anyway, I I segue a bit like Mount Disappointment, but 
acres and acres of burnt trees and burnt signs and burnt beautiful walkways. They've all started to rebuild. A lot of people were in the pub on the Saturday night. A lot of people were at Lucy's. So if there's a good place and it's open, people are supporting those businesses. But it's just awful to see some of this beautiful landscape completely ruined. The golf club just survived, but around it is carnage. Streets have entirely burnt houses. But then other parts of Malakuta were absolutely beautiful and you wouldn't even know there'd been a fire, such as a random nature. Where did I see on your daughter Clem's Instagram, where did I see you all hoeing into those oysters? Oh, that was... Um, a bit further north? Well, several places. We ate a lot of oysters. <laughs> but there was um, Tarthra oysters where um, that, that, that day it did rain and Tarthra is a beautiful, another beautiful town and they... They had to sell all the oysters because they couldn't get any more in because of the rain affects the oysters, which was a real bummer. So we went there and brought some beautiful oysters. If you're in the town, go to Tarthra Oysters, honestly. It's absolutely stunning place and the oysters are freshly opened. But the other one we went to was um, in Marimbula, in this tiny little shed about 7Ks off the highway in I mean, we were sort of surrounded by trees covered in water. It looked like they were about to be flooded, having had bushfires only weeks before. Um, in this shed, not only did they sell the best oysters, which they freshly opened for us and charged us absolutely nothing, you had about eight different choices. They sold these beautiful linen tea towels with oyster logos. I only we bought, love a good bit of linen. I only bought one, which was really, really dumb. We did, a, anyway, we did a lot of tea towel... Observation when we were in Cornwall, I have to say. That place was called the Oyster Barn. Absolutely beautiful. But we also went to a great place in Lindenau near Bensdale where I had possibly the best meal I've eaten in about a year called the Long Paddock. Um, I think she worked, she was a chef with Shannon Bennett and is now running a little dairy farm or something there. And this, again, a beautiful little cottage where just absolutely packed with locals. So we ate some great meals. We saw some beautiful things. We um, also stayed in Pambula Beach, which was absolutely beautiful. Um, went to an hysterical little burger bar in Marimbula called Dulcie's. We walked and well, saw I think some beautiful should, things. I think we should put this in our show notes. And then we because... went to Mollymook, which, oh, yeah. of course, is one of the most – it's about three and a half hours south of Sydney and next to Ulladulla. Go to Rick Stein's. Stayed at Ricky Stein's, went to some beautiful beaches, found, again, some businesses that have been destroyed not only by lack of service and lack of visitors but by power issues and others have opened up little caravans in little swimming holes around the joint. I mean, there's, it, it's like a fairyland to explore and the driving into, into Mollymook was almost as confronting as driving into uh, Malakuta, but once you get there, no sign at all of any damage. Um, well, they just opened the road to Malakuta, so that was interesting. Sh- everybody should follow your lead. This empty esky thing is really starting to take off. I've had lots of customers saying that they are going to head north along the um, New South Wales coast and, of course, to Malakuta and bushfire-affected areas around rural. Well, you wrote a column about it, and, in fact, you're going to do it yourself. I am going to do it myself. Um, so, um, Caro... The reason, or part of the reason for your trip up north was that you had to, um, you attended the um, uh, Sport, Sport Australia Sport Awards. Australia Awards. Yes. That's right. You were a judge. And that was actually just a happy coincidence, to be honest. <laughs> but. Um, and it sort of got me thinking uh, over the weekend about women in positions of authority and influence in sport. And one of the catalysts for this was actually um, a media colleague, uh, Tim Watson, he uh, has released his top 25 footy journalists 
And he starts with Jared Waitley, which I think is a really good call. And then he's at number two, he has Mark Robinson, number three, Damian Barrett, number four, Jake Nile. No Caroline Wilson. And on his list of 25, only three women, Lauren Wood of Herald Sun, Sarah Ollie of Fox Sports and Sarah Black of AFL Media. No you, no Caroline Wilson, and no, uh, only three women. What's with women in sport at the moment? Oh, well, Tim would probably say that, you know, I'm no longer writing full-time for The Age, so that's probably why he didn't put me in. Oh, he doesn't like me. Would, he would it have like something to do with the Essendon, Essendon drug scandal? No, he, doesn't mm, like people, he doesn't like people who write about Essendon and don't have a, the same opinion as him. But um, most of that list is probably pretty good. Um, I noticed, but three, only three women, does that... that, does that I think s- there are a few other people in positions on that list far too low because of Tim's biases and issues about them. So that says as much about Tim as... Um, it does about them, but it's a pretty fair enough list. It's it's a pity since I left the age, there was a group of us over a period of about three or four years who just went and did other things. Samantha Lane is now doing a lot of hosting and television work on Channel 7. And a podcast with Emma Race. Yes, mm-hmm. and um, Emma Qua- and a, a podcast for the Richmond Football Club called The Originals about their AFLW journey, which is fantastic. You should listen to it. Um, Emma Quayle went off to be a recruiter, the first female recruiter, in fact, at GWS. Chloe Salto was the chief cricket writer. She's now the managing editor of sport. So there were other reasons why women went to, into it. Claire Syracuse now runs our um, podcast, the Real Footy, Age Real Footy podcast. So that's just the age. Um, yeah, I guess, I don't know, Corrie, it's a man's sport. Ooh, I don't know about that. I was on some website, I think it was the Women's Sport Australia website, to be confirmed my source there. But I saw just 22% of board shares on sporting bodies, you know, football or soccer or whatever it might be, just 22% of board shares and only 13% of CEOs are women across um, 60 sporting Australian sporting organisations that they uh, investigated. And it just seemed to me to be such an imbalance these days. I thought we were kind of over with all that. I thought we were heading toward more of a more of an equal mix. Corrie, it's definitely changing. It's getting better. And, you know, I can't sit here and mention women in board positions without mentioning the current premiership president is, in fact, of the AFL club, Richmond, is a woman. Have to give her a big plug, Peggy O'Neill. But um, at the Sport Australia Awards, the host was Liz Ellis. The Lifetime Achievement Award winner was Karen Tig from ABC Grandstand. Close to half the award winners were women and nominees, um, obviously, though, a lot of men as well. Um, the judging panel was made up. I think there were three or four men and two women. I mean, I feel the representation was there. And funnily enough, you would have loved this. We um, we did have kick-ons, a few of us. Oh, I'm not surprised. And um, That's my, not like you. Myself and Sam Lane and Jess O'Halloran tried to find somewhere, a nice little wine bar, before, before we went back to the pub where everyone was staying. Well, in Sydney, do you reckon you can find anywhere around that Hyde Park City area that's open around 11, 11.30 at night? It's just tragic, Corrie. We're, we, are the, we are the going out capital of Australia, clearly, here in Melbourne. Anyway, so we ended up back at this pub and um, a couple of the Outer Sanctum girls were there, Lucy and Nick and Debbie Spillane, who, funnily enough, I'd never met, was there. And it very quickly... What a great mob. And then there were a lot of blo- – Robbo was there, Jared Waitley, um, Glenn McFarlane, who um, won an award for his brilliant podcast, Sacked. Um, there was lots of male journos as well, Sydney, Brisbane, everyone. 
But very quickly, the women were all sitting up on the high table and <laughs> men were all on the low table. And there were a couple of... Um, Funny the way that happened. Well, there were a couple of issues we were debating and the subject of Narrowly Meadows came up. Now, Narrowly Meadows, a year ago had been announced as the new co-host of the footy show, the revamped footy show. She had a starring role on Fox Footy. She had a starring role in the new sort of media cricket setup. She was uh, a Triple M footy commentator. Fast forward to 2020, um, Nerali's doing a little bit of work for um, AFL Media on the AFL Media website. She did some work with ESPN. She was over at the Super Bowl doing some work for them. She's not – the footy show, of course, was canned pretty early in the season. She was let go from Fox Footy, from Fox Sports, late last year in both her cricket and footballing roles, even though she was nominated for a Sport Australian Award for a brilliant interview she did with Travis Varco. Um, so do you think it's gender-related well, or we're talking We're all talking about why, why was narrowly let go. Now, the common consensus in the room was narrowly can be – difficult to work with, even though she's a very good host, she's a very good interviewer and she's a thorough professional on the screen when you look. I mean, I think she's a great host. Um, difficult to work with. And some of um, Nerali's issues by people, you know, some people love her, some people are not so mad on it, probably a bit like me. But the detractors were, you know, listing these things and I'm thinking, mm, they sound like probably... 25% of the blokes I've worked with in sport across radio, TV and newspapers over many years. Clearly, if you're a man who's difficult to work with, this is in sports. This, to me, was the comparison. It's okay, not if you're a woman. And several like-minded men who I agree with who were there in the room that night said that is exactly right. And a lot of other women have made that point to me since then. And And one person even said, look, you know, there were budget cuts, you know, there's Sarah Ollie, there's Sarah Jones, there's Nerali and a few others. You know, she was the one because of some of her attitudes. And the girls in the room and I looked at each other and went, but why did one of the women have to go? There's a lot far, of the men have attitudes There's far too. more men at Fox Sports and Fox Footy. It's just really interesting, that whole – so I really hope Nerali bobs up again somewhere soon and maybe – and look, we've all got work habits that aren't great and we've all got – we could all maybe treat people better in the but workplace she is a, she at is times. A, she is a very big journalistic talent. But know. it's just she interesting should, she should be somewhere all those jobs screens. I mentioned to yeah. why, why does yeah. she not have them when there are men who behave far worse than her in the workplace who've been absolutely fine? And funnily enough, the next morning um, I went and did ABC's Offsiders um, – or a couple of mornings later, hosted by Kelly Underwood. Two of the three panellists were women, including me and Lisa Alexander, who'd just been finished up as um, the Australian netball coach. And we talked about, I think Liz, I think there's a view and she, I think she feels that maybe Liz Ellis wasn't all that generous to her and might have been one of the people who led to her demise. And it was interesting talking about an entire group of women and political women behind the scenes in sports. So that to me was... So shows on, that things um, have changed, that it was even a story that the Australian netball coach has been terminated earlier than, in fact, she wanted to go. Last weekend, uh, I was involved in judging the Melbourne Press Club Awards in the feature writing section, and um, the Harry Gordon Award for sports journalism was also being judged at the same time. And I wonder... Yeah, ten when... nominees and not one of them is a woman. Mm. So that, that is, that's interesting. I mean, okay, as, so, a, as a so, former winner, clearly they, they're not banning women. So, newsroom, so, so newsrooms really 
have to look at this issue. Lucky Tim women, Watson wasn't a judge of the year. I women covering sport, do, do newsrooms actually have to actively promote women now? Are we in danger of, you know, I mean, dare I say you and I and a handful of others kind of led the way or paved it or made it okay to cover sport, have children, have lives, you know, to do it. And then we had the next generation, which of which Chloe Salto and Sam Lane and so on are part of that. And they're all doing amazingly well. And Jess O'Halloran's we just to... been made the chief sports writer of the Australian. But, so... but do we, are we in danger of, of younger women coming through saying, this isn't for me, I'm not being given an opportunity or I'm not really interested or it doesn't, it, it conflicts too much with my personal life, maybe rearing no, children or whatever? No, 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 I don't think that at all. I don't think that's got anything to do with it. I, I just, I do think that certainly in the TV space, and Channel 7 have made some proactive changes. They've got more women on their Sunday football show now. Um, they, yeah, they're definitely introducing more women into their commentary teams, not quickly enough and not enough. But Fox Sports, who had made huge efforts, huge inroads after three or four years ago, I was very critical on International Women's Day when they photographed their football team and there wasn't one woman there. And they said, oh, well, Sarah Jones was on maternity leave. I mean, how pathetic. There was about 15, 20 men in the photo. They've made inroads. But I, the Narrowly Meadows story disturbs me mm. because of not so much of about the women, but about the attitudes of the men around her. Mm. Anyway, well, there you go. Let's move on to the Academy Awards, oh, Corey. Did you? Let's move on did to you the watch Oscars. or were you on the road? Oh, Dal, I was on the road. I was on the road, so I was listening on the sort of radio as news was breaking. Oh, how distressing! I would have organised my trip around the Oscars. I still feel well. It, ever since it's sort of on live, it's sort of ruined. Remember how we used to do the media ban and all go around oh, to our friends' really, house? Really, it's really hard. No, I never did. I never did that. I always like to concentrate at home with one, possibly two, family members. So some highlights, Caro. The opening number sung by Janelle Monet, who I've never heard of in my life. I admit I'm a Philistine. No, I haven't heard um, But it was a real showstopper in the old-fashioned Zigfield Follies kind of way. Taka Watiti, his speech for Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar, which he um, received for Jojo Rabbit, was really funny and really touching in his message all, to all the Indigenous kids in the world who want to do art and dance and write stories um, because we are the original storytellers. And we can make it here in Hollywood as well. So that was really encouraging. Parasite director Bong Joon-ho, he won Best Original Screenplay, Best Director um, and obviously Best Movie. He was terrific, humble, funny. He was great. Still, it must have been a bombshell, pardon the Oscar <sighs> film pun, when that was announced. Well, I, I People think People must so. have looked absolutely shocked. Yes, the poor Sam Mendes, who directed 1917, I think he was, in, he was a bit shell-shocked afterwards, but... When the best film was announced, and you know how all of the ensemble get up and make the speech and everything, they dimmed the lights like this is the end of the show. And Tom Hanks, Charlize Theron and so on, in the front row were going, no, 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 and doing the up movement with their hands, like bring the lights up. They actually convinced the award organisers to keep the lights on so that they could finish the speeches, which was really sweet. The funniest moment for me, James Corden and Rebel Wilson, they arrived on stage in cat, full cat outfits as members of cats. And they said, "We who would be better placed than us to present visual best visual effects? It was a very funny moment. 
Um, and Rebels I, had a big award season. She's had, and she's done very well. I'm so proud of her. Best outfits. Not as keen on the outfits at the Oscars as I was at the BAFTAs, I have to say. Renelle Zig was a wig and looked terrific again. Margot Robbie was pretty lovely. Laura Dern's dress looked much better as she moved and walked up to collect her Best Supporting Actress Oscar than it did on the uh, Did she win the it for the marriage story or yeah, Little Women? Yeah, the marriage story. Okay. Regina King in a beautiful beaded pale pink. Penelope Cruz always has that kind of Spanish finesse, that little oh, she's cheek. She's so gorgeous. She, she just looks stunning, not the kind of dress that you or I would wear, but she looked amazing. The kind of dress you and I would wear, Sigourney Weaver, who is a bit older than us, she's 70, but she uh, presented an award in the most beautiful emerald green dress, no decolletage showing, but low, kind of shouldered, slightly covering arms, really beautiful dress, thought that was great. So I was a bit disappointed there was not one mention of The Gentleman, my film of the summer. Starring Hugh Grant yeah, and no, Matthew McConaughey. Why did that not make it into Oscars season? Look, they don't really like Guy Ritchie. I reckon Greta Gerwig was um, absolutely robbed not being nominated for Best Director. Well, she certainly wasn't nominated in the BAFTAs. And there was a big sort of talking point, wasn't it, over the whole BAFTA area that women had been oh, yeah. very and, so a lot of great And there was directors. a lot of that at the Oscars as well. And I feel like saying, don't talk the, like, walk the walk. Don't just talk the talk. Come on, guys. Don't, like, everybody's standing oh. up there going, oh, you know, where are the women Think well, you are the people in positions of authority and power. You know, Tom Hanks, you can decide who your director can be. You're so powerful. Don't just sort of moan about there's no women. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was my film of the year. Parasite, which I went and saw on Sunday with the girls, um, to mixed reaction from us all. Corrie, you don't know where it's going, but one thing I will say, you cannot take your eyes off the screen. The star of the film is actually this unbelievable house, which um, Anna from the Op Shop told me yesterday, in fact, was specially designed and constructed for the film. It's not a real house. So the house is the symbol of affluence and wealth. Um, there is are it two- set in Seoul? It's set in uh, South Korea, yes. There's two families, the Kim family who are poverty-stricken and the Park family who are very wealthy. Um, at first you think it's a comedy, a satire on the rich and the poor. Then you realise it's a very, very black comedy. Then it sort of turns into a horror film. It is so many, a disaster film. It's everything film. It has got so many layers and there are so many scenes that just stun you and take you by surprise, that terrify you, make you laugh, make you cry. It is... It, it's an incredible film. It's an incredible commentary on the rich and the poor. And, you know, one of my friends said to me she didn't like the way they treated the rich in the film. But, in fact, there are characters from this family, the wealthy family, who are enormously sympathetic, as are the poor characters. Neither of them are, are good people in every way. So it's not black and white. Oh, no. It's well, just... Francesca, my daughter saw it, and she said it's one of the best films she's ever seen. She loved it. It's Yeah, no, I really liked it too. I mm, really, really liked it. But you really don't think it should have received best Oh, no, well, I mean, oh God, uh, how many times have we sat there after the Oscars and said the film, the bit, I mean, was it Green Mile that won a couple of years ago? That was a nice little film, but it shouldn't have won the, shouldn't have won the Oscar. Mm, remember when um, they accidentally announced La La Land? Oh, I know. Well, I was up in arms and they said, sorry, terrible mistake. I went, yes. Well, see, I see. I really like La La Land, but I didn't think it probably deserved. No, it probably shouldn't have won. But I just think Quentin Tarantino has been not well treated by the Oscar motion picture industry. I mean, Inglorious Bastards was a wonderful Such film. Such a great film. I agree. I don't think that did very well. Anyway, if you get a chance, it's now come back onto the screens because of winning the Oscar. Go and see Parasite. Okay. It is quite... 
it's pretty it's pretty disturbing and it's very sad and in many ways a beautiful film. Okay, we have to keep moving now. Crush of the week, you have one. Oh, well, it's got to be Louise Milligan, who's done more absolutely brilliant work, I reckon. Um, That Four Corners that was on the other day and her expose of what has gone on at St Kevin's, a private school in Melbourne, that um, has the the treatment that the principal, what the principal did by, A, giving a character reference to somebody who has been convicted as a pedophile, and um, the, the lack of support shown some of the students who had to go and give evidence against this guy who had been, um, well, they're, they're trying to claim now he was just a part-timer or a consultant. And He'd on been... the morning of the trial, he rings the mother of the child who has to give evidence, saying just checking whether the kids are wearing St Kevin's uniforms, kind of prefer if they don't. I mean... <laughs> I sat on a panel with Louise at RMIT last really? year talking about some of the stuff and it was sort of embarrassing. I mean, it was actually embarrassing for talking about some of the flack and the issues I've received through some of my reporting when I listened to what she's been through with the Catholic Church. So that was a, that was a brilliant expose on Four Corners. It's not going to end there. I'm, I don't think the principal of St Kevin's will survive. No. So well done, Louise. You're my crush of the week. And now it is time for... Book, screen and food. Oh, look, here I am again. I have a book. Corrie, I have just finished. I'll just sit here and eat my oysters from Tathra. I thought I'd read um, this this F. Scott Fitzgerald, um, but I haven't ever read The Beautiful and the Damned. Oh, haven't you? Oh, he's a fantastic writer. This is um, – he sort of wrote the same story, didn't he, about five times. I mean, Tender is the Night mm. is probably he my – He was slightly fixated on wealthy people. Well, it was all about his himself and Zelda, really, wasn't it? But the couple this time is not Dick Diver, it's Anthony and Gloria. And um, it's just about a doomed, wealthy couple who uh, you could say their lives are totally meaningless, they're total dilettantes. It's largely set in New York. It captures an era, which is obviously the early 1920s, in a way that looking back and reading about this and realising it's 100 years ago and yet the values and the stories never really change. The way he writes about first love, the way he writes about boredom, the way he writes about New York back in the day, it is just... From the from page one, it is doomed and tragic, and yet you are just with them all the way. Um, one of the side characters, um, Dick Richard Caramel, who's an author, um, and a, a a sort of subject of great envy from Anthony, is a wonderful character. The grandfather who just won't die, who is a do-gooder in in late in life and won't die and leave them. This desperate and very very spendthrift couple. Um, any money so they can be happy and rich for the rest of their lives. Oh, it's just, it's a wonderful book. Oh, that's good. It's a good book. The Beautiful and the Damned. Mm. Now, you've been to the movies, Corrie. I have. um, Unlike you. I I know. Well, I told you I'm turning over a new leaf in 2020. More movies for me. And I took myself off on my lonesome, which, again, is an interesting experience. I know you do it often, but um, I loved it. Yeah, it's great, I went and saw Emma. I went and saw the millennial version of Jane Austen's final novel, and you would have to describe this as a comedy drama. It's the debut, direction debut of Autumn de Wilde, possibly another woman who was robbed in not at least being nominated by the Academy. And the screenplay was written by the Booker Prize winner, Eleanor Catton, who won 
the Booker Prize a few years ago for the luminaries. And I met right. her years ago when I did um, the, the year that she won the Man Booker. She was on the John Fain Conversation Hour and I was a co-host. And I found out four days before that I was doing it. And the book, The Luminaries, if anybody's read it, is about 900 pages. So that was fun. Anyway, the film stars a couple of people who we may not be all that familiar with here in Australia. Anya Taylor-Joy is the meddlesome Cupid of Emma. And the incredibly... She play, she's been in horror films. Yes, girl. and she, yeah. she's very beautiful. She has very um, broad cheekbones and huge eyes. And a lot of this story happens in her eyes. It's a terrific acting performance. Johnny Flynn is the next door neighbour, Mr Knightley. And Josh O'Connor, Caro, who we know oh, as Prince, Prince Charles, Charles. Yes. he, of course, is the socially ambitious, uh, slightly bumbling vicar, Mr Elton um, Mia Goth plays Harriet. Miranda Hart, you know, chummy from Call the Midwife and, oh, of course, yeah, the well-known yeah. comedian. Miranda Hart is really lovely as, uh, I can't remember the character's name, but the spinster who um, kind of annoys Emma beyond belief. And Bill Nye, who you and I love, is Emma's father. He is brilliant and he steals every single scene that he is in. He has a particular, um, he gets particularly anxious about cold drafts and so on. It's hilarious. New York Times said, Taylor Joy's Emma is poised and quietly scheming, eyebrows arched, her glassy eyes swivel around the room, scrutinising her company. She is a vain, manipulative snob. <laughs> and I think, Caro, this is where this one really uh, win, she's, wins well, it she's for me. Good, good-hearted in well, the Well, end, well no, it's interesting well, because you see the way Gwyneth Paltrow played her back in the 1990s in that beautiful, um, not Ang Lee, but whoever did that film, that film version with Gwyneth Paltrow, Gwyneth uh, had a had there was a there was a a warmth and a slightly ditzy, ever yeah. so slightly ditzy. Yeah. This Emma is quite um, menacing in a way. She's very smart. Um, Anya Taylor Joy brings brings her across as quite smart and quite manipulative, which I really enjoyed that take on her. One of the heroes of this, of course, is the setting and the sets and the costumes. Regency England has never looked so good. Lavish costumes, beautiful interiors, uh, rolling English hills, and the estates looked heaven. It's just absolutely perfect. This was a really enjoyable film and gets you thinking about all sorts of things. Was it Alicia Silverstone played her too, didn't yeah, she? and a clueless, yeah. yeah. And she was, a again, a even though a bit ditzy, quite a, a sympathetic character. You get the feeling in this one, why is she becoming friendly with Harriet? Well, it's because her beloved governess has gone off and married. And the manipulation, the gentle manipulation of Harriet, you do realise toward the end that Emma really does love Harriet. It is a genuine friendship. It's not just like she's a plaything. But what comes across is Emma's boredom. The way she's portrayed in this one, and I think Jane Austen's novel really depicts this well too, Emma is really smart and she's born at the wrong time. You know, she would have made a terrific politician, but of course in those days that wasn't available. So she sits in the drawing rooms of these houses with interminably boring people, the same people usually for weekend parties. And she just... Makes mischief. She makes mischief because she has nothing else to do. And I think that's one of the things that was the take home from me. Because I just felt that if Emma had been at another time and another place, as indeed Jane Austen herself, you know, what would have happened? So I loved it. Lots of points for that. Now, food... You've been eating your way up and down this, the southern coast of New South Wales, but have you cooked anything? I have. I cooked um, dinner on Monday night. It had to be vegetarian, and I decided to continue with the Mexican theme that we've loved this summer. 
And because Clem's been cooking a lot of Mexican, we've got a lot, a lot of Mexican ingredients. We've got so much spicy smoked paprika. Jalapenos in the fridge. All of that. I love chili con carne, as you know, and I love all the accompaniments, you know, a bit of sour cream with jalapeno, a bit of cheese, a bit of avocado, a bit of corn salad. So I made spicy chili beans out of this fabulous vegetarian cookbook. And it is the simplest thing ever, Corrie. So instead of having meat, you actually use three different kind of beans. There's um, lentils, kidney beans and black beans. You can buy them fresh and soak them overnight or you can just use a 400 gram can of each. There's chopped tomatoes, there's tomato paste, there's smoked paprika, of course, there's cumin, there's garlic, there's red capsicum, brown onions and olive oil. And it's a about a three-step process. You can do it all in which, an hour. Which book can you remember? It'll, I'll come back to you okay. on that. Oh, it's um, a wonderful book. And was there book. a lot of posts? It, it, it was in my sister Amelia's house in Sydney, and I took photos of all these great recipes. Oh, Miss Jane's going to have to have access I'll to that find for it. our Facebook yeah, page. Yeah, but I've got the recipe here, and it'll be on our show notes. Um, Carol, was there a lot of post-bean activity? No, I did hear from one of the guests. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, none in our house. Um, I mean, you, you, not, a, not a lot of that only happens. That only happens if you don't soak them properly, Corey. Remember that time? Remember that time you made that risotto? And remember you admitted that you'd undercooked it, and it stayed cooked in our stomachs overnight. <laughs> I don't remember. That. Yes, you do. Remember, I just had Ned, and you had us round to a beautiful dinner to celebrate the birth of your godson. <laughs> Don't you remember that? And I remember, Clearly a bad memory. I remember the bloke saying, oh, this is beautiful. Mm, not rice is a bit crunchy. And you said, oh, I think I've undercooked it. And I remember going home and ringing you the next day and saying, I could feel the risotto still fermenting. <laughs> risotto does not ferment. Anyway, well, what does Maybe it do? Maybe it was the weevils. No weevils. Anyway, spicy chilli beans, honestly, the easiest and healthiest okay. and most beautiful recipe. Now, you're grumpy, I gather. Oh, apart from being grumpy about you telling, lifting the lid on my risotto. No, no, you're a great <laughs> cook, but I, I thought you would have remembered that. We all had a no, big laugh. No, I don't. I think, oh, did you? Oh, well, oh you and I, nice. You and I both laughed together. <laughs> oh, together. Hey, listen, I've had as many cooking disasters as you. <laughs> um... Okay, I'm grumpy. I'm grumpy. Uh, this, I'm sorry. This is my beef, and I'm going to stick with it for, because I'm really determined to change habits here. One of our uh, and a and a, a shop that you love, Carol, as well. I'm not going to name which one, but in our beloved Hawkspoon Village, after many years, is closing. Oh. They're not even selling the business; they're clo- closing. The the lease is up. Um. They have found that the 4% CPI annual rent increase plus the rising costs in the products that they sell and make and fewer shoppers at the moment. It's been a terrible Christmas, as we've talked about. And in fact, the official, the retail figures nationally have come out. It's not just me whinging. November, December, retail was down. So there's a bit of a crisis there. But um, this uh, friend of mine has tried to negotiate with her landlord and said, look, you know, if you just give me a little bit of rent relief, maybe not a 4% CPI increase, maybe 2% or maybe just waiver it for six months or just give me a lucky break. No, nothing. And the point here is about, I mean, not only should everybody shop local and support shops like my friend, but my beef today is about landlords. I preface this by saying the bookshop has a terrific landlord. Uh, we have we have in the last few months 
they've gone above and beyond with their kindness to us and giving us a lucky break and time to pay off rent and so on. So we're eternally grateful. We are very lucky, but we are few. We're a minority. A lot of landlords of, of, of retail properties are really greedy and they have a skewed and unrealistic sense of what is actually happening in retail. My friend's landlord apparently said, things are going well in your strip. What are you talking about? So that landlord would rather that she close her business, that shop is empty, and he's receiving no rent in order to strike a better deal with someone else, then have have a thriving business that's that the shop front looks terrific, his property is, is doing well, I don't get it. Walk down Chapel Street, walk down Bridge Road, Richmond, you see it all the time. Just And for me, it's landlords that just will not budge on, they cannot see that this is not 2011 or 2014. This is a tough time. And unless we all do something, shop locally, but unless landlords as well come on board, we are going to have shopping strips in Melbourne that are ghost towns. I am so devastated my friend is leaving. I can't tell you. Yesterday, I just stood in her shop. I, I Honestly, Carol, I had tears in my eyes. Oh, I just I felt so sad because she doesn't want to give up the business. She loves what she I does. I must say, I was walking down. Um, and when you went, find out who it is, you're going to die. I tell I you. was walking down Turok Road, South Yarra, the other day, and um, a, a, a fashion shop, a clothing shop that has been there since I was turning double figures, Fig, is closing down. Oh, Fig's been there forever. After about four, uh, must be four or five decades. One of my mum's favourite shops, the most beautiful knitwear, the most beautiful elegant clothes. That is the end of an era. Oh, it's just, it's it's too sad. So I'm really grumpy and really sad about that. Now, um, and can the NBN who put those yellow things outside our house and they've done the NBN and they did it about three or four weeks, you know, those big yellow mats? Yes. It's absolutely, you should see our street. It looks absolutely dreadful. Come and take them away. Corrie, when are you at your worst? This is the first of six quick questions. In the car. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I no prob- doubt about it. Probably agree What about with you? That. What's, when are you? Um, oh, I didn't know I had to answer this one as well. Probably um, in the car is when I, no, 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 no. When I'm on the phone to utilities, <laughs> when I'm on the phone to um, you can join my husband Pete people with that. phone bills or <laughs> Corey. There's a new James Bond movie coming out this year. Um, Daniel Craig's last. Who is tipped to be the next Bond? Well, there are a few tips. Uh, our friend from Poldark, Aidan Turner, has been tipped, and Richard Madden from The Bodyguard, who I have a bit of a crush on, although he's very short. Not that there's anything wrong with short. I'm stressing not, but, you know, we think of James Bond being kind of tall. Uh, Sam Hugan, who plays Jamie Fraser in Outlander, of course. But the big tip, and get this, Caro, this is the hot one, and I reckon he might get it, James Norton. He's yeah. left Grantchester. He left Grantchester and there's a new character now, but he was very mm. evasive when he was asked about it the other day. Watch this space. Caro, if you were a member of the royal family and you were asked to Prince Andrew's 60th birthday celebration, would it be a good PR thing for you to go? Would you go or would you not? If it was a massive publicly funded party or even a, just a massive party, no. If it was a small family gathering and he was a family member, yes, I would. Oh, that's interesting. Who's your tip to be the US Democratic presidential candidate? I have no idea. This is a three-horse race at the moment between Bernie, Biden and Bloomberg, a 78-year-old Democrat socialist of all who suffered a heart attack last October while on the campaign trail, or a 77-year-old vice president who six months ago was everyone's tip but just bombed in Iowa and New Hampshire and seems to be a bit deflated and exhausted, 
or a 78-year-old former New York mayor who is a billionaire with lots of money but a tricky past in terms of his political record and also comments that he's made, inappropriate comments about women, about race, about stop and frisk, all of that. Where are the young people? Where are the African-Americans? What happened to Andrew Yang? It's just... Women, like what happened to Elizabeth Warren? I don't get it. Anyway, Amy Klobuchar, you're my hope. And please, just do well. Caro, what's your GLT? Look, I feel awful making this my GLT because it's connected to the coronavirus. But have you tried to buy crayfish lately? It is so cheap. Jesus. I mean, not, not not since I sacked the servants because I don't have any money. No, no, like, I, what do you mean? I have never, crayfish. I never buy crayfish. Why is this a GLT? Because if you like crayfish, and I absolutely love it, it's it's fifteen or twenty dollars a kilo cheaper than it has ever been, or certainly over the last ten years. Coronavirus has shut down the Chinese lobster industry, or the lobster we send over there, the trade. The Geraldton Fishermen's Cooperative is looking actually at domestic and other international markets to offload their crayfish. That's just one famous. You're an trader. opportunist, Caroline Wilson. Well, Someone's got to buy it. They're trying to sell it. They've got a backlog, a glut of crayfish. All I'm saying is now is the time. I happen to know your Pete does is partial to a bit of um, barbecued lobster with melted burnt butter all over it. I'm just saying now's a good time to buy it. Anyway, on that horrifying note, but it's true. Dancing on people's graves. That is the pod for this week. Please send feedback, comments, tips and suggestions to the Don't Shoot the Messenger Facebook page. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Don't Shoot Pod. And you can email us. Please email us. Nice or nasty. Feedback. No, not nasty. We don't want nasty. Well, if you disagree. Constructive criticism is very welcome. Feedback at Don't Shoot Pod. We we throw it in the bin. We don't listen to it. .au. Thank you, Miss Jane. Lovely to see you again. And your ginger plant is absolutely beautiful. Corrie, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger, Caroline.